0: but now we don't have any value here's your death sentence so we have with us uh, John Greenway aka also known as the Little Crit Guy aka Young Crit aka Noriega uh, from um, the Horror Vanguard podcast as well as his own um, writing on his uh, pa- is there a Patreon you do?
1: Yeah, yeah and there is a there's a there's a there's a blog there's a sub there's there is god for my sins there's a Substack as well Oh, uh, tis, oh the age, tis the age
2: tis the age yeah, yeah.
0: I, i've considered it
2: you're not um, on twitch though dismissal. and that's that's the important one hmm. well tiktok uh, yeah. yeah uh
1: the, the the rock bottom of online content creation yeah
0: <laughs> <laughs> Uh, do you want to tell us about Horror Vanguard just before we start? Because it's—I it's, I imagine like 99% of the people who listen to this will also listen to Horror Vanguard because they—and if they don't, they should because it's really good. Uh,
1: yeah, because just... 99% of the people who um, who listen to this have excellent taste and are very cool. Uh, horror, Vanguard is... <laughs> <No>. <laughs> horror... Uh-uh. horror Vanguard is horror. Uh, Vanguard is 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 good. It's a it's a it is what the left needed. It's another
2: podcast. That's um, right. I... We were lacking. But now yeah, we're catching we, up. We're, but now we're okay.
1: <laughs> so it, it is it is about it's about leftist theory and horror movies. Um and yeah, we talk about we talk about we talk about monsters, we talk about uh philosophy, we talk about movies. Uh we like to say that horror vanguard is actually about three things. It's uh it's about most importantly, it's about friendship, mm-hmm. uh it's about it's about communism, uh, and thirdly, if we've got time, it's about horror movies as well. Good.
0: That's kind of the same as this show. Yeah, yeah but- um but also oh, anime yeah.
2: Uh, yeah yeah we uh <laughs> we're about anime hardcore drug use and getting lost in the woods
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah we don't we don't <laughs> know how to navigate and we keep we keep going there we keep we're we're like we're gonna figure it out this time and then they have to air ever uh, air uh, us out again <laughs> Yep.
0: Yeah. the Just uh cover, the... covered in like one of those uh, thermal sheets the mountain rescue guys going, oh, again, this is, this keeps happening. It's costing like a lot of money and just, we'd never learn our lesson. It's
2: like, the affordable. Forest Service said that they're not going to, they're not going to bring me back anymore if I keep getting lost. And yeah, I that's keep bullshit. They will. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. They, I, I'm like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Right, bitch. Just yeah,
0: saying. <laughs> oh, you're just not going to do your job. This
2: time. <laughs> yeah, course, yeah, you're going to so. let me die in the woods. That would be so easy. There's no, that's not sporting yeah. at all. Like I don't know <laughs> what to do if a bear comes up. Jesus.
1: I just feel like that threat, though, means that the next time you do this, there's real
2: stakes involved. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yeah, which
0: is going to just encourage me. I mean, come on.
2: Uh, yeah, um, Horror Vanguard is brilliant. Uh, OG <laughs> listeners will know that we, we had you on way back um, when you were uh, fini- finishing up your initial work on uh, Gothic Marxism. Um, so this has been... Uh, a long brewing project. I, I think we chatted like just before you had launched it as well, and now you have a better podcast than us, which makes us blood enemies. <laughs> <laughs> I I I have always considered Horror Vanguard to exist in the in the death sentence expanded universe of podcasts. Yeah, I I literally can't imagine someone who'd like what we do and i famously don't like or listen to podcasts despite having run one for many years now fuck you gareth um (laughs) but uh i do listen to yours Uh, they they call that the podcaster's burden that's right right. like because because
1: uh, on a personal level none of us can stand listening back to our own voices Oh yeah. so uh and likewise death sentence is on it's on a very select list of podcasts where i go yeah, all right. Yeah, okay.
0: <laughs> uh, that That's that's uh, the main draw. People go, okay, I need something on in the background. Yeah. It can be that, or I can just listen to the air conditioner. And,
1: uh, and, and and if you're saying that Horror Vanguard is better than listening to an air conditioning unit, I'm going to take that as the highest possible praise you can give a podcast.
0: I, I recently watched uh, Skinner and, and that's the horror movie <laughs> equivalent of looking at an air conditioning unit.
2: I... Um, I Really like Skinamarink, but also Same. that's not wrong. I, I I have listened to more than one record of literally field recordings of air conditioners. So um, I'm I'm you are you're pegging me like 100 right now. That's what she said. Um. That's right. <laughs> no, that's it. That's what he said.
1: Yeah, I was I was wondering what gave Death Sentence its very unique chemistry, and <laughs> now we know. <laughs>
2: i like things that aren't music if it's if it's normal don't want that if it's probably bad i do i've watched every airbud movie john i've watched every airbud movie including the ones where the dogs can talk and hang out with ghosts because they they start doing that at a certain point they ran out of sports but you know what they'll never run out of dead dogs
1: I, I, I'm sorry. Did you say there's there's an Air Bud movie with ghosts in it? There are two. There are two Airbud uh, movies with ghosts. Future uh, horror god, Monkey
2: Buddies <laughs> and
1: Treasure Buddies. I sense, I sense, sense a death sentence.
2: Horror god crossover in the future. <laughs> this is going to be the most beautiful uh, extended universe episode of all time. Um. Now, anyway. For people who want to read along at home with what we're covering today, it's a book called uh, Free and Direct, The Novel in a Post-Fictional Age. It's um, our most favorite thing, books that aren't fun to read, unless you're (laughs) autistic like me. Um, In which case, this is way better than, I don't even watch movies anymore. Like, I watch like maybe two movies a year, but I will read the fuck out of books like this. I'm like, uh, you know what made my eyes bug out of my head in a joyful way? Do you know how much a paperback copy of this book costs? A used paperback copy. $35. That's Mm -hmm. used. Ooh, yeah, baby. The digital copy? A digital copy is $17. Hardback, though, this is when you know you're in the real shit. $140.
0: Yeah, that's Mm. some academic press right there.
2: Real heads. Uh, academic know. publishing, it is it is so broken. <laughs> you ever get a real like deep curiosity? So there's two kinds of people in this world that like books like this. People like John, who I believe have finished their PhD, and people like me, who will never finish a PhD, and this haunts me. Um, even though everyone who's finished a PhD, again like John, says, Don't do it.
1: Yeah, don't. It's bad. It's a it's a, it's a bad, it's a bad way of spending your time. Don't don't do it. Do not do that. I know I know people listening are going, uh yeah, but for
2: me it would be different. No, it won't. It won't. It won't be different. It's all bad. Just don't do it. I've contemplated getting one as a bit because I think if my commitment to it is it would be funny if I got a PhD, but didn't change my career track whatsoever, just got one. Um that the idea of it being a bit could sustain me through through the dark years. Of like, there, there, are it's for the are, vine. Like, yeah. <laughs> there are there are
1: three reasons. There are three reasons that I can think of that that, that actually make sense. One, if you are like insanely independently wealthy and you you, you basically run out of other things to spend your money on, do, yeah, fine. Uh, two, uh, spite uh that can be a really effective kind of uh, and three just do it for the bit that's uh, beyond beyond that the reasons are bad uh
2: yeah i wasted maybe a decade of my life and uh went completely bald from simply mostly bald uh, as part of an extended gag (laughs) Uh, if you really enjoy back pain graduate school might be for you that's all i'm gonna say For people with our unique kind of, um, high salinity brain juice levels, um, Mm -hmm. the idea of a book that is, um, painfully abstruse and mind-bogglingly expensive is a delectable treat. Um, in the literature world, it's like finding a new, harder Finnegan's Wake that you can read. Oh, I love it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, can we say some nice things about this book instead of like uh, indirectly said terrible things about <laughs> I, it? I don't I mean... mean to <laughs>
2: roast it. <laughs> I am roasting it, but I don't mean to. Um... Okay, let okay. so I
0: convened <laughs> – there's a third kind of person who read this book, and that's me. And I'm the only one who would do this because I read an article in Gorka of all places about this book. What? About, yeah. You, I, I'm sure I've linked this to you.
3: I'm um, no,
2: I, I, yeah, I'm. It's coming back to me. I'm just, I'm baffled that someone at Gawker is New Gawker is literate enough to have read this.
3: I,
0: I mean, I guess they were a freelancer because uh, New Gawker is like just a bunch of freelancers. We've had people on the show of like uh, Tom, no, Tom Wyman's never really on the show. Yeah, he was. Um, who was written for New Gawker? New Gawker was a really great. It was like <coughs> it was reinvented as like a really great. Um, online magazine that had that threw away all that like, oh, someone in Brooklyn is doing cocaine. Can you guess who it is? I'm like, no, I don't care about that. It's probably yeah. everyone.
3: <laughs> I was to
2: um, is is it every citizen in Brooklyn? Yeah.
0: Um yeah, and they threw away all of that. They got some really great people on board. Um Brandi Jensen is a really good editor for it. They and they started writing really great stuff and obviously some um trust fund asshole in a um VC company canceled it all like a couple of months ago one of the articles that was really great was about this book and about how uh, free and direct by Timothy Buse is like the big new thing in literary fiction in literary studies right now and if you want to get if you want to understand novels in the 21st century you're going to need to read this just like you'd have to read like Bactin and Lukacs the people um yeah so I went out and bought myself a copy because for some reason on UK Amazon it was actually affordable, um, and uh, I don't, I I have no idea what's going on here. What is go? I have, it's so.
2: I, I just I I was I was, I was fucking got... rock hard through this entire book. I was I like, know, this yeah, is boy. this book is for me Run. alone. I am the I am the target audience.
0: You, I, yeah, I, I knew the moment you opened this, and um, you would get the silkiest boner of all time.
2: It it's would, like shark skin, smooth all over.
0: Yeah, you would have just got sprung by this. And I was like, oh, I'm a tiny baby who doesn't understand language anymore. Like, okay, so we need to kind of unpack what this book is, is doing and how it's doing it. Yeah, I think this
1: she... is, it's it's difficult. It's it's difficult. It, I mean, we have been we have spent uh, maybe slightly too long talking about the things which are wrong with academic publishing, but that's not a that's not really the fault of yeah this the 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 book is actually I think really interesting. It's it is complicated uh, and it is difficult, but it is actually really as asking some kind of very uh, very intense questions which have a very long philosophical and kind of theoretical history to them, which is basically. Like how does on the most basic level, it's like what is what is the kind of organizing philosophical principle of the novel? How does this how does this thing hold together and retain its coherence beyond the kind of simple level of semantics? And like increasingly, the the kind of cultural awareness that uh, Tim Buse is picking picking up on, it's like maybe it it doesn't. So like we have <laughs> to actually kind of re- rethink the novel from the ground up, basically, right?
0: And that's. I think what post fiction is, it's not a, a new genre. It's kind it's a kind of like post modernism. It's a it's a time. Uh, even though it's kind of, even though there are many novels from a long time ago that could be called post fiction. Like he talks a lot about uh, W. G. Seabold and even Dickens in this. I don't, I don't think Dickens is post fiction in this. I, I think. So, okay, I think what he kind of does is he, he makes a vocabulary and you have kind of got to get it in order to get everything else. A classic
2: and of our world. It, it is.
0: <laughs> a whole, just make up a language and um, hopefully people get it.
2: I've read enough to lose that you can throw all kinds of made up words at me and I just go, all right.
0: Okay. So the first, the first accepting. <laughs> the first term, which I, I, it's not his, it's from various other people, but is really important in this is ex, exemplarity or instantiation. Okay, John, as that guy, <laughs> um guy, please explain to the folks at home what is instantiation when we talk about it within a novel.
1: So uh, I think the best the best way of doing this is to talk about. The is to introduce more complex vocabulary, <laughs> uh, which is something that he borrows from Catherine Gallagher, which is this idea of non-referentiality that has a greater referentiality. So, like novels don't refer to real things. Uh, in shocking news, they have a non. Uh, uh, the example in that gorker article, which is actually really good, is Don Quixote. Don Quixote is not a is not a kind of real person, but precisely because of its non-referential- non-referentiality referential non we can kind of uh, there's a greater referentiality to a kind of a quality or an idea of quixoticness right which is a real thing that we can we now have language to, go to kind of articulate so that that is instantiated in the novel itself um an exemplar exemplarity if i'm understanding the book correctly which is not necessarily the case is this notion of like the part being taken as an example of something greater than itself, mm. yeah. And I think that that one I think is a slightly more straightforward one. But what do you both think
2: about those terms? It's, it's, I, I think that, um, this I think two things one, um, this is another sort of example of the jargonization of academic thought that acts sometimes to gatekeep people. Shockingly, I'm not actually necessarily against that, I think sometimes. Um, that mitigation process is meant to deliberately limit the audience to people who are going to get what you're talking about. So that it's one of the ways that you keep someone from, uh, like the classic example that we saw of the proliferation of either therapy speak in online discourse or s- what before had been semi, um, like professional languages s- referring to something as a pro as problematic, which in its sort of original um, critical context uh, is tied to the idea that you're not going to have any object that doesn't have contradiction within it. And the problematic is um, that which embodies contradiction. And so, you know, it it asks you to resolve it versus the lay usage once it broke through was anything from a person sent like a flirty message and it didn't land good to they killed some guy and ate him uh, for race reasons, <laughs> um, which obviously is like a massive dilution. The thing that I think about these terms specifically is they're an extension of some in mind bogglingly old literary concepts. So basically, he's reframing um, uh, like metaphoricness, like what he refers to with instantiation and exemplification. Um, reminds me a lot of like synecdoche. the notion of like, um, that which is non-referential. Quite literally, it's just like it's not referencing something from the real world. And what he means by the whole instantiation is you've embodied otherwise abstract concepts into something, um, concrete and graspable.
0: So, so one of the things he talks about with instantiation is like the color red. Is the, is everywhere. You can. There's yeah. a bunch of books on my shelf that have the color red on them. There's an apple with the color red on it, and so on. It's instead the color red is instantiated in a bunch of different places, all over the world, all over the universe. Um, but <clears throat> and that's a pre and stuff in books is a, is instantiated. Like uh, bravery is instantiated in Luke Skywalker and Frodo, for example um but what he is saying in this is that example this instantiation relation is is breaking down um or has already been broken or just realizing yeah, now because
1: it doesn't broken. necessarily have to be explicit that's yeah. a really i think that's a really important point and actually it, that's a really good diagnostic criteria for what is like kind of fundamentally wrong with a lot of a lot of contemporary literature particularly like fantasy or like ya which tries to make the instantiation extremely explicit where you'll get like this is the person who is doing the good thing that should be taken as a kind of universal value Mm. and it's done in a kind of like very clanging prose but like um this the the this is yeah the what's called in the book what's referred to as the instantiation uh relation the relation between the, the uh Uh, this kind of non-referential object and a kind of universality of what it might stand for. Um, But this in, in, in good novels, this is not, this is not done. (laughs) um, This is not done explicitly, but this is where the problem is starting to emerge. And it's kind of like in the book is kind of uh, JM Coetzee onward is where uh, it's taken as like a diagnostic sample of this relationship starting to,
2: maybe it already has kind of fractured apart. Like uh, in in a certain way, you can think of it like one of the best ways to grasp these sometimes abstract things is literally to think of like the didactic, like Aesop's fable kind of thing as the quintessential, purely functional instantiation text where it's like the grasshopper is industriousness as a character trait made embodied through the grasshopper. The
0: the ant is the, um,
2: Industrial oh, yeah, 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 it, uh, yeah, I, I got them all backwards. I, I forgot the plot of A Bug's Life. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> which which is literally just the Aesop's fable, uh, which is um, goofy as fuck. Uh, but yeah, so you take this abstract notion and you make it very explicit. And by nature of that, this is sort of an inherent aspect that comes from it. You naturally are simplifying it the only way that you can bring back a level of like deep complexity that maybe maps more often to the real world is ironically by breaking more and more from a pure mapping. Um, Which basically is what he, he works himself toward is like, ironically, the way that you make something a better representation of a thought in a certain way takes you away from it until eventually you reach a, a, where the title comes from a free indirectness the only way to talk about a thing is ironically to talk about nearly anything but the thing at least visibly on paper
0: so that kind of brings us to yeah the title free indirect and what that means so free indirect in as a as a word is something we've probably all seen before it's he he gave an example of um the first lines from uh, joyce's the dead where um it's like uh, a woman was was literally um, worked off her feet, but of course Joyce isn't saying literally worked off her feet because that would be that doesn't make sense. <laughs> he is, he is um, he's kind of repeating what the woman herself would be saying in his own narration, even though she isn't the first person narr- narrator there, and that's a, that's free and direct speech in a book, so. How do how do we connect the example the end of the instantiation relation to free and direct? But kind of what you were just saying there, Landa, was about like where do we get from okay, this we we can't <laughs> talk about um character X isn't is instantiates bravery or goodness or evil anymore. Therefore, we now have to go, go on to something else I, yeah i've got a nosebleed here
2: one one way to think about it i think is to compare texts that do exist so we can sort of see this in motion oh yeah um, give me examples yeah. so pure instantiated texts uh or at least that strive for that would be quintessentially and this is me speaking to the more literary readers that is your plot driven text why do these mm-hmm. things exist to pull the plot forward. Why is this character doing X or not doing X to move the plot forward? That's like the pure instantiation because it also achieves, this is me speaking to the Marxist, the pure materiality of the text. The material world of the text is actions, bodies, relations, things like that. The more indirect you get, the more interiority you're putting into something. So something like Virginia Woolf, most exploratory, Joyce, um, Ducks Newberry port, something like that. These are, even when they're about the physical world, you're not really talking about the thing that it's talking about. So like in Ducks Newberry port, when you have a list of medication that goes on for, I think, two pages, two or three pages, that is not about medication. That is about sort of the obsessive look at how, um, our heavily medicated world, um, creates this level of mediation, especially one that isn't being judged by the text. It's just sort of commenting like, God, we passed through all these sort of valences. And you naturally can't achieve the kind of complexity of, of theme, of character study, unless you start diving into that kind of interiority. You have to move away from the pure material relations of Jane goes to the kitchen. She opens up the kitchen, or she opens up the fridge door. She pulls out the milk, things like that. You have to make it about the interior. Um, And this is where he reaches his sort of, his, his breakdown point of, Ah, my brain, my brain's short circuiting because I'm also high on cold medicine right now. That's well, right. Good, that's good, the secret sauce. <laughs> <laughs> a
1: good a good way th- into this is to kind of point out that free and direct discourse is actually about access to consciousness, right? And that's, mm. that's the word that's kind of been missing from everything we've been talking about, right? It's about this uh, kind of centering of language on the exploration of consciousness. And so uh, it, towards the beginning of the book, there's this really good example uh, where he kind of explains that there are kind of two ways you can read this so you can read this as kind of like internal to the novel diegetically in uh, and he uses the example of um, Madame Bovary uh, by Flaubert Uh, connecting Emma Bovary to her to her environment suggesting a kind of sociological explanation of the kind that has long underpinned the literary structure known as realism and then externally you have this uh, kind of logic where the work itself connects into a sort of social totality and again he quotes lukash uh, man in the whole range of his relations to the real world right this is that's the kind of point uh that he's getting at and then you know the the two examples of that as kind of polemical slogans are em foster's only connect you know the whole point is of free and direct discourse is to is to bridge uh, the 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 siloed space between characters and consciousness within the novel, and then external to the novel, you have Jameson's kind of famous injunction to always historicize. Right? That's so we can. That's that's how it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. But increasingly, the, the point is, is like, well, if this is no longer holding true, if novels themselves are losing the kind of faith in the project, is there a way in which the novel can still think? if we get away from this idea of a kind of consciousness behind it all that is kind of there to give shape to meaning.
0: Yeah, and that's that was one of the things I had the most difficulty with, which is uh, talking about how a, a novel thinks. And there's like, one very boring and o- probably obvious way is you could read a novel and say, the person who wrote this novel is trying to tell me Uh, something about it like an Aesop's fable for example that's one way the novel could be said to think something but when he's talking he talks about that and how that's broken down and how everything because every literally everything including the epigraphs of novels could be a could be free indirect speech by someone or something a, a, a what's, he, what's that term he uses like a, a diegetic consciousness like a, a, a thing in the novel some um fly on the wall that's seeing everything uh because everything could be could be i could be ironic everything could be the speech of some other order of consciousness we can't yeah we can't say that um uh, the fable of the ant and the grasshopper is really about how you should be industrious rather than lazy. Is is is, is that even close to what he said here? I'm, it, I, I'm, I'm I, I, think, I think
2: I think yeah. you're covering one of the initial steps of the kind of thing that he's saying. Part of what he tables, and it's this is where we get back to um, the uh, ironically very deeply relevant bit about the time lag of academic publishing is a lot of the concepts he is putting forward if you've been plugged into sort of the academic discussion space around and theory discussion space around fiction especially in the wake of um the whole ya thing which we've Mm -hmm. we've nodded at um a lot of these ideas have been floating around for in nearly this exact language for like 10 or 15 years and in general thought much longer, um, which isn't a knock to this book. You kind of know that you've made a good and incredibly well grounded piece of academic publishing. If you can situate it that easily that it's, (laughs) you're not some wackadoo coming out of fucking left field. Mm -hmm. But, um, the general thought that he puts forward is, uh, I saw it as parallel to, um, Sort of the theory of not looking at the novel as a set of discrete thoughts that you either approve or disapprove, but more uh, trying to figure out how to say this that doesn't sound insane. <laughs> um, imagining the book as a kind of circuitry, and but it only comes alive when you are reading it because the thing that's happening, the the reading, is this. Massive contradictory thoughts that happens in you prompted by the book. And so in that way, the book isn't really about itself. It is a means to get you to start walking down a thought road. And before, this notion of instantiation and the relation there kind of focused on that the point of the book was to get you to think in a specific direction and hopefully arrive at specific understandings because of reading it.
0: And before we'd say- In the way like a a nonfiction book would. Yeah,
2: that like a book is good because you walk away from it going like, God, that's horrible. Or, oh, now I have more complex thoughts about this. mm -hmm. Meanwhile, what he's positing with the free indirect thing is that like, maybe that's not really what books not only do now, but maybe the fact that they're failing to do that now is indicative that that isn't really what they've been doing the whole time.
1: yeah. And there's a kind of problem, right? the The problem is that this this way of thinking about the novel. This is the argument, and I don't I don't know whether I'm entirely convinced by it. But the problem is that we exist in like when this is when we allow uh, for you know books the singular coherent speaking consciousness that is there to uh, either either uh, help us connect to the in- interiority of the novel or its wider historical and social social totality. The the point is thought travels down very well defined, actually increasingly predefined routes, right? Uh, th- this is this is something that he's kind of like uh, taking from uh, like Adorno and, and Hawkheimer, like the problem yeah. of predetermined thought. <clears throat> it's like how do we get out of this kind of trap, where you go, oh, this novel means this, and you go, that was kind of just predicted from its marketing, right? How do we get? How do we get out of this kind of loop that we seem to be stuck in? Um,
0: that sounds very I, delusional. It's like, how do you make something new? How do you? How can you be a body without organs rather than a tree?
2: I mean, my jo- the joke about me constant re- referencing <laughs> him in part comes from the fact that, like, he was it in an exceptionally kind of theatrical and deliberately slightly goofy language talking about those kinds of problems that emerge in the postmodern condition.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Exactly. And
1: like, I, 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 I I admire the attempt, but I am, I am not entirely convinced mostly because, you know, I, I've been, I've been reared on Jameson and, and Lukash and this idea that actually, the rhetoric of fiction does have referentiality to it um but maybe that's just me now being stuck in the same thing that i'm
2: trying to be shaken out of well um i i think i think one kind of answer to that is ironically sort of the problem that we run into with historicizing things and this is something that um modernist uh and postmodernist literary critics sort of clicked with far faster than far faster than Marxist ones is we presume sometimes that the way you historicize a text is an objective thing based on the history of the world at the creation of the text and that it's our job to get closer to that because that's the truth of the text. But it ignores that whether this is good or bad, it doesn't matter um, because this does happen someone from 2023 encountering a text will create a new kind of real historical read, but based on their understanding of history or based on how this is intersected with them now. And so, again, whether or not these multiplicities of materiality and historicity should exist, whether or not they cause contradiction by all of them existing simultaneously, They do exist like they do happen in the minds of people. This is where we get um, the frustrating to uh, mind bogglingly frustrating and insane thing to me of people going back and sort of retroactively creating these reads of especially things that are classic or within the canon that aren't just like critical of them, but they're imposing a kind of logic onto them that I think is just not in the text. But I also can't deny that like those reads exist because someone sat down and experienced the text and is conveying to me their thoughts about it. I may think they're deeply wrong, but they do exist. Um, and there then becomes the problem of like, how do we grapple with that? We've all tried it. Yeah. We as in the people on this podcast have tried telling people at various points, like what you're doing is just not correct. Your read is just not correct to the text it breaks from historicity it breaks from the real contexts that created this work but i think we all also know that like that's a sisyphean task like we're we're doomed to fail in convincing people of that because this this other kind of approach to reading does occur again and again
1: yeah, I think this is this is maybe the ground on which I'm not, like, super... I, I haven't kind of completely bought into the argument. Because um, I'll admit, like, my re- experience of reading it was, like... At first, I was like, this is, this is wrong. I'm, like, banging on my copy of the theory of the novel. And like, <laughs> uh, but, like, this is... This is... The thing that I think kind of gets skirted around here is, like, the social aspect of reading. So... There's this idea of like I actually like this idea of kind of decentering thought, like allowing the novel to think or to, to the, there to be a thought in the novel as a totality, right? Not just the in the kind of voice of a narrator or a character or an author figure, uh, and actually allowing that to be received by a reader in a way that doesn't necessarily kind of demand something of us. I think it's good. I think that's useful, but I also think. Reading is inextricably bound with the social, right? So, I don't know how we kind of square these two things.
0: How do you have expand upon that a bit? Like, how is reading bound with the social?
1: Um, well, it depends what you think. What you think reading is, um, and it's uh, again the, the essay in Gorka, which I do think is really good, brings up a really famous quote from Christopher Cordwell, uh, like famous, famous kind of Marxist critic in the thirties um uh where cordwell says that actually it, a work of art is a relation it's it's a it's a relation between um the the it's he said it's like a machine that has to be grasped at both ends for for an order something to happen right uh it, it, it is something that is done reading is something that is done socially i think is it is bound up with wider social problems of commodity production of you know we were talking about the public business to start with right this is these books do not exist in the, there is no perfect relationship between the singular text and the singular reader right there is this is always this is always bound up in a kind of social field and this is the thing that actually brought me around on the argument is like um And this is a very old problem, is the debate. And it goes back to the debate between uh, Lukács and Bloch on expressionism versus realism. And it's like, yes, yes, that relationship of instantiation has started to uh, be questioned or fall apart. But this is, isn't this symptomatic of something? This is symptomatic of something kind of much bigger. The good example in the book is where he's talking about Siebold and Siebold's um, constant iteration of this idea of there is no connection, there's no relationship. And then he kind of harkens back to, to Dickens, where Dickens is explicitly drawing within the novel all of these connections. And it's not just in um, it's in Bleak House that they quote from, but it's in like A Tale of Two Cities, where there's like this global network of connections that opens the novel. It's like, so what's changed? What's kind of fractured here? And really, it's not just a kind of literary problem. It's it is, it is, I think, necessarily
2: an aesthetic, social, and political problem too. I mean, it, it hits at, um, this is one, one area where Marxist criticism has always sort of struggled. Um, I don't, I don't think failed speaking, speaking as a communist, of course, I don't think it's failed. Um, but, um, there is at least a struggle with grappling with the, the psychological as real. And that's sort of, um, for me being very much a 20th and 21st century, communist that i think is sort of what opens the door to to contradiction which to an orthodox marxist is one of the most frightening thoughts that you can you can gesture to them as like a contradiction and they, they they panic um but that the psych reading as a psychological event i think is sort of the the primary thing that happens is that we're not engaged with the author and we're not, we're not necessarily engaged with the history. Like if I read a foreign translated novel from a culture I'm not familiar with, I'm having a relation between just me and the text. I don't really know that world. Now, the thing that starts complicating that, and this is the part where all the Frankfurt school like tutelage starts teaching us is the psychological is a discrete and obscured sociological event in The the normal way to say that for for regular uh, average people that are not uh, brain poisoned is the way that we think is conditioned by the culture we grew up in, conditioned by the sort of cultural experiences. That's why you can have the dumb memes about like only 90 kids would remember, you know, blank because there is a cultural ground. If you start looking at time plus region, you can you can build out culture stuff. And that will affect your cognition. And so we start building out this network and the frustrating thing that we have to grapple with is the ground that we want to be there, which is the firm, real historical ground as defined in a specific way, a firm, real materialism as defined in a specific way often isn't the way that texts are actually being experienced, and because of that, that's not really the way that their reads or influence are actually being exerted. It was a lot easier to keep everything tight and clean and clear when we had far less avant-garde techniques, when the amount of work being published was greatly limited, when the regions in which it was being published were also limited. Like, you can start now you don't deal with the problems of multiplicity and the way that how multiplicity and plurality kind of shatters any one operating rubric that will define something. Because once you open that door to the realm of the psychological, that is the only place where contradiction can exist and fucking loves to exist. Like the physical material world can't have contradiction. There can't be a breakage of relation because that would mean that that would mean that reality broke. Um, that just doesn't happen, hopefully. Um, but when you're talking about events within the mind, like events that aren't real, um, this is sort of the inversion of his instantiation thing. We want them to be instantiated, but ultimately they aren't instantiated. This is a bit of the deconstructivist in me talking as well they are events that were created in a mind and we just sort of have faith or we had before faith that they would correlate to the real. And we're now sort of running into the, the, the reality of like what happens when they don't. I think that's, I think that's a really good way of putting it. I think there is this
1: really interesting bit from the conclusion of the book that I, I think kind of puts puts some some kind of shape to everything we've been trying to talk through once we reconceive the novel not as a form but as a logic once we understand the work of the novel not in terms of representation but as a thought that is always emerging a thought of which a thought of which the novel is the subject rather than a vehicle and that is present not in any work or body of work, or in some projected stage or historical phase of the novel, but in its collective orientation, it becomes apparent that the critical theoretical register perpetually comes up against its own limits in the novel. This is why this book has insisted on the principle of the novel's untheorizability, and has pressed the viability of a thought that 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 it is itself unable to formulate theoretically. Um so i think I, I guess i guess the kind of question is is like well what next for the novel like if <laughs> if, if novel the novel is kind of caught in this tra- in this trap that it's slowly seeping out of if if we are post post fiction as a coherent or or theoretically justifiable mode of orientation um i i think like the the obvious question is like what comes out of the wreckage of the novel
2: um this i think is actually answered in part by and thank god i'm a i'm a uh, a reader of books for adults thank god because i think this is a far more intractable problem i uh obviously the more you try to cleave to well my work exists to be didactic in some manner like it um, doesn't have to be YA, but we also have just the simplified version of creating a text where it's like, I think racism is bad. That's correct, by the way, it is bad. Um, uh, so now I'm going to make a text saying that. Meanwhile, a field like, we were talking about this not too long ago, a field like autofiction, in which it is not quite autobiography because it doesn't tell itself it needs to be beholden to facticity, to, to the real facts of a life. But it is an author writing out how their life feels to experience, um, and letting themselves follow the feeling over the reality. Um, that this ironically also lets us reground things. That like texts and the logic of a text is um, a phenomena phenomenological logic. It's an experiential logic, um, and once you sort of resolve there then answer is sort of the long-standing question that mostly um, people fixated on literary realism have always had wondering, which is like why do we have all this um like why are we breaking from a naturalist realist mode which should be like the best and most literary and erudite form of literature and it's like well because, it's the same problem that ironically emerged in set theory. It's we set out with the idea that this can perfectly map to the world with you know strict logical operands and we can build out this elegant system and we run into just the plain problem that we can't. Like at some point, uh, you, uh, for lack of a better word, you gotta get a little weird with it. <laughs> Which sounds dumb. <laughs> when I say it that way, like I'll admit that the phraseology makes it sound dumb, but it's a. Uh...
0: I think I, I think I get it. I mean, like the the idea that you could. I there was um what was it um what's her name um Margaret not Margaret Atwood uh Joyce Carol Oates. she was um she tweeted the other day about how she was living she moved into a new neighborhood and she told her one of her neighbors that she was a novelist and one of her neighbors said well why do you write made up stuff why can't you just write uh stuff that happened and i actually messaged her to ask what she said to this and she said i just didn't engage in that conversation it's not worth having but um yeah like like you said there's there's a certain point where just simply representing the real world telling a real story is not going to work as well as getting a little weird with it get get in get nasty writing about some freaks
2: it's also sort of like the fundamental act of the novel if we, if we can think of one at all um is in some point the breakage from the real and Part of what this is answering, I think, um, uh fittingly in an ironic sense, it was indirectly answering this, is why do we even like do fiction? Like if we want to mm-hmm. understand the world, w- why are you doing fiction at all? Why aren't you doing yeah, theory work? Will. Why aren't That's you why doing that. essays? Why aren't you doing nonfiction? Like, um and part of it is, this also gets at Uh, The thing I was saying before of like when you have a non plot oriented novel, another way to think of it is why would you ever break from chronological representation if you're trying to represent the real in a certain way? And we do it because the mind really doesn't actually think chronologically. It thinks in terms of like resonance mapping where someone says something hurtful and you don't think in a chronological sense, you think in the shattered chronology of every little memory this touches on that generates hurt. Um, And so to make novels work better, you almost have to make them. It's, it's very obvious. Once you sort of think about it, you have to make the novel work the way that your mind and the way that your feelings work, not the way that the physical world works
3: so
0: it's is that kind of related to when he talks about uh backtin and chronotopes and how foucault was talking about how like the, the yeah. novel the novel of the future could talk about could break the whole um space and time uh relate not relation that that could break with the idea of there being a coherent space and time uh, the, the guy is here at this time.
2: He, I, he, I at yeah. least think so, absolutely. Like, that's the part where, for me, that what he was putting to pen to paper about in this book are these notions that we've had grounded and emerge and even vetted in literary space for literally hundreds of years now. It's just, it's yeah. um, relatively rare that someone just says it straight up. Which is weird, but... <laughs> So, so, what does that novel look
0: like? Is it is it Dalgren? Is is Dalgren that novel? Um, wh- have we got any examples of this, like happening? Is it is it purely theoretical?
2: Um, I, one I think, so the most obvious thing is you grab something like Finnegans Wake, you grab something like Dahlgren, things like that, and you go here. Here's an example. But the thing that he mentions of like it, the novel as not only a logic but a logic of the moment is that you can't one of the one of the ramifications of that is the minute that you have a an isolated static form it now can't really be that because now you are repeating a form for its own sake rather than actually following um actually following thought and experience as it occurs Uh, this is it's it's where he also arrives at the point of, like, you can't really think of the novel as a static form. It's a logic of putting thought together. And if you imagine, um, the writing on the page of any given book is the representation of thought. So it's basically him saying, like, don't look to me for what genre should books be to be good.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why he d- he goes to Seabold. It's like there's yeah. a guy walking around uh, Norfolk for a while. That's the book, uh, but also it's does these a billion different things with how thought works and how stuff can be and can, can be written. How he, it, you can read something that's being written as it's as you're reading it. And
2: yeah, I mean, he okay. he sort of. Uh by proposing the sort of general thought he naturally has to move away from the more prescriptivist approach that is ultimately i think the thing that sinks previous theorizations of the novel um that that other thinkers have have dreamed up is that ultimately if you follow them you do get a form which on paper is their version of the ideal novel mm-hmm. and this is something something that um Uh, Hughes has to account for or Buse has to account for that maybe other theorists didn't because of just the amount that had been published is we've seen so many different kinds of brilliant novels like they're all brilliant but they're all very formally different and how do you account with one theory that so many multiple multiplicities of form can achieve novelness in ways that we think are equally brilliant but obviously (laughs) like radically different
0: hmm yeah, I guess it's ultimately why he says post fiction isn't a genre. It's a logic. It's how, not. It's not how to do it. It's what can it do? What can
1: it be? he's, yeah.
2: he's defining. I think the problem.
1: I think the problem that it's yeah, running yeah. into is like so much. So much of like contemporary lit fiction from this. I, from this, I was suddenly like, oh yeah, that's why so much of like contemporary midlist novels just feels so kind of stale. They just feel so kind of deeply unsatisfying yeah. because they're restaging a sort of social unity that doesn't kind of ring true, or getting lost into the specificities of a of a very recently gone present that immediately dates it. And it's like, uh, in in a way, it's like, are we is that is the novel not are we asking too little of the novel, or and is the novel not asking enough of us? And it's like there there has to be an element of. A a kind of no longer fighting this rearguard action of trying to kind of resurrect realism, but of actually trying to see where this road that these kind of various symptoms have have, uh, have kind of
2: shown themselves, where all of this is taking us. I mean, this is where we get like his version of post-fiction as he frames it, I think is most parallel, not the same, but it's parallel to something like literary fiction, which is also a theoretical term that emerged uh, in the 20th century. Like it's not a very old term at all. And it literary fiction was always sort of bogged down by the problem of, okay, so what's not literary what kind of fiction can be non-literature like what like what does that even mean um it when when you propose a name you are proposing in turn it's opposite um or at least a negation of it and when you imagine the negation you go like i'm not sure that this is a thing that uh and he does the very sort of for me, I read it as like the Nietzschean move where it's like there isn't an opposite to post fiction. He's, he's reframing the question of how we think about in crass terms, what makes a book good versus a book that's bad. And it's not really that like, oh, it, um, this is where you can get all kinds of weird theoretical, theoretical arguments that I think all of us agree are dumb where it's like, oh, this book is good because it's so realist. And you're like, that may be good about it, but books don't become good because they're realist. And likewise, it's like, oh, this book is, um, you know, psychedelic and experiential. And that's, that's why it's good. And you're like, okay, that's, that's fine. That can be a great books are written in that mode, but there are also plenty of fucking garbage books that are written that way. it's right? so just <laughs> like utterly undisciplined fucking word soup. And so he's, he's trying to make something that's a parallel to literary fiction, which even as it stands now covers an immense range of books that we would say are of literary acumen um like it, it doesn't mean that you have to approach it in a specific way
1: yeah and i think there is a kind of utopian element to this i've been i've been reading a, a lot of ernst block lately so <laughs> it's like there's this there's this notion of this kind of diegetic this this uh, new diegetic consciousness um, I think really interesting because it's a it's, I, it is circling back, back to this question, not what is the, the novel and what is its kind of taxonomy, but what can the novel do if we allow it the freedom to become something
2: else Cool yeah, it's uh, it, it's, it's a meaty one. It is sort of, uh... yeah, it, it, if I had to sort of um, wrap up the book in a thought, it's this doesn't wildly diverge from how I'd sort of already thought about novels. The project it's trying to pr- propose is more like how to think about books and about what, like books are trying to do not a book, but like when you're reading a book, what is the task of the book? And how do you like, how do you judge how it's achieving that? Which I think is ultimately where this is the unifying fact. When all of us are driven up the fucking wall by the worst um, interpretations of art and literature that we've ever seen in our fucking lives, which we seem to be constantly bombarded with, like, at all at all turns. When you look at a show and you go, oh, I was kind of clanging and dumb, and people are like, no, it was liberatory. And you're like, I don't think a TV show is going to give political liberation. And they go, you're dumb. Anyway, this movie also did race murders. And you go, I don't think that happened either. Um, at least the project of this book is trying to get at what might we be feeling or thinking when we're evaluating um those wildly bad takes okay. like the person who said everything everywhere all at once was uh like what was it like bourgeois propaganda and um yeah. set like uh was green lighting gaslighting and abuse and you're like <laughs> I don't think that's true I think that's wrong
1: like <laughs> yeah. But so once again what you're saying is like
2: ultimately it all comes down to posting. Sadly, <laughs> we are uh, we're trapped we're trapped in the fucking hyperdome. Um two posts enter, one post leaves. They're both racist.
0: <laughs> so that was uh Timothy Bus's post fiction. Um <laughs> Of course, <laughs> yep, everything just comes back to posting on, I, I,
1: on to, to, to Timothy Buse, I am sincerely sorry for what we've just
2: done. <laughs> it, it, okay. it really is a good book. Like, it, it provides a lot of fungible thought. And again, we, we mentioned this before, the task of books like this isn't to tell you the truth, it's to get you to think about a problem, and the book is basically a hypothesis and an approach to the problem. The fact that it generates thoughtful, like, thoughtful thought? Jesus. Yeah, the cold medicine be hitting boys. Um, the fact that it generates quality thoughtfulness about just the topic of the function of the novel is indicative that it's a successful book. Mm-hmm. So, like, joking aside, if after yeah. reading this you feel the need to grab someone go, What the fuck are we doing with books, man? It did its job. Yeah. yeah, 100%. Then enough. that's why I'm not
0: allowed to go uh, to Manchester Waterstones anymore.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so, but, uh, yeah, folks, you can... If you've got an incredible amount of money, you can go buy this. Um, <laughs> or, you know, there are certain websites uh, that um, will lend it to you, let's say, for evaluation purposes. So you can evaluate it by reading the entire thing. Uh, but, so... Uh, john is it, where can people follow you um what should they look out for from you in the future um and so on uh
1: yeah you should you should come listen to horror vanguard uh horrorvanguard.com and w- on whatever artisanal platform you get your freshly grown organic podcasts um you, you can find me on pretty much most platforms as uh, at the liquid guy um and, uh, yeah, I am, I am working, I will have two books out next year, Bloody which hell. is really exciting. Uh, so one will be a short thing on utopian philosophy with zero books nice. and the other will be a, a book with repeater books called, uh, with the working title of capitalism, a horror story, Gothic Marxism and the dark side of the radical imagination. Bloody hell. Uh, so, you, so you
0: put zero and repeater in the same year. Wow. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> that, I mean, I don't know. Apart from like obviously Mark Fisher and people, I don't know anyone who is who is published on both of those publishers simultaneously.
1: Uh, yeah, it's s it's been great. They, it's <laughs> I am so tired. <laughs> um, so I'm spending the rest of uh, the next few months and finishing off the uh the second of those books for repeater and I will be posting little clips and excerpts and works in progress over on patreon.com the liquid guy but yeah, uh, listen listen to the podcast that's that's where you'll find me most of the time
0: mm-hmm. yeah what, uh, when are you doing skin and rink because uh, I, I'm I will tune in for all of them but I will double tune in for that one
1: it is it is absolutely on the list be. uh, we uh, we hopefully we're gonna be doing it relatively soon so it's um' Yeah, I'm excited about it. I, Ash Ash is a huge fan, so like those are always good episodes when we can have like some good spicy conversation about something.
2: How would uh, you handle being skin <laughs> Uh I
1: again, you just got post through it.
3: You just got right.
1: It's It's like a job. It's like a new job that you realize that you hate.
2: You just post through it. Can you imagine live la, live tweeting being Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm upside tough. down now. Yeah, the phone's glowing. Yeah, it's um. Yeah, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, I, I can't find a now. bathroom, so I think I'm about to piss myself in the Skinnermaring <laughs> house. <laughs> Skinner Skinnermaring, we just terrible. Um, <laughs> I think I'd handle it well. I'm neurodivergent. Yeah,
0: I, if there's like,
2: I, I've got a bunch of books. I've got if a there's bunch textures of, uh... in there, I'm good. Yo, I love textures. <laughs> Unless they're bad, then I hate textures.
0: I know. As as long as there's no like really fucked up carpets that yeah, would give right. me nosebleed, I would I'd be fine <laughs> in a skinning type situation. <laughs> and and like if if a skinning demon told me to stab myself in the face, I just wouldn't do it. I'm built do you, different.
2: Do you yeah, built different. Do you think House of Leaves is the novelization of Skinnamarink and they all just got Skinnamarinked?
0: No, but. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs>
3: Right? Love it. Love it. <laughs> Dif- no. <different>
0: <laughs> uh, anyway, um, we're going to uh, end with a song by Big Brave. I fucking love this band a thousand times, times a million. Uh, they are a free piece from Montreal. I know nothing else about them. Don't need to know anything about them. Just love them.
2: Yeah, it's uh, hyper emotional. Um, yeah, if every- you. Every- I guess that's a, what it is. Anything. Yeah, I,
0: I, yeah, but not. It doesn't sound like, say, ISIS or yeah. neurosis or something.
2: It, I mean, it, it's more than that, like the Boris vibe of like very droney, very. Um...
0: I mean this this new one reminded me a lot of um, Emma Ruth Rundle's yeah. um, "Some Heavy Ocean," just that like massive cavernous guitar sound, but it's still like a at the heart of it's kind of almost a country song.
2: Um, it's the, yeah I mean they they were they're hot off the heels of that that folk record they did which was a which collaboration is with the body um yeah they 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 threw in basically like the way earth blends like country and drone metal um and yeah every song on this album makes me cry like a fucking baby it much like the Cocteau twins I don't know why I'm crying but I know I am
0: oh yeah um yeah, this this song is just, and the song is has like two halves of it, and they're both amazing. Uh, it's nine minutes long, as you can probably see if you're looking at your uh, podcasting platform. Uh, and just yeah, just sit down, um, listen to it, and um, if someone tells you to do something, just tell them no. Uh, tell them your skin rig dub. They they don't need to know what that is. It's just a scary thing to say to people. Yeah, you tell, tell them you, that you'll uh, take away their toilet. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. I'm going to Pennywise clown marink you and there's going to be no <laughs> toilets. <laughs> You're going to have to piss yourself in the Skinamarink house. Yeah. Shit inside of a toy phone or something. <laughs> they had
0: buckets. Um, anyway, so here's Big Brave. Uh, that was post-fiction. Uh, Come back um, in however many weeks we choose to do an, <laughs> another episode this big
3: brave